0: My name's Kurt Marfurt, and I'm a proud geophysicist because I think we offer the world not only the solutions to the past and future energy problems, but also a deeper understanding of processes that form
1: the Earth. Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. It's an honor to welcome Kurt Marford back to the podcast for a third time. For our third conversation, Kurt reflects on his career and the recent award of SEG's highest honor, the Maurice Ewing Medal. In this fun and insightful conversation, Kurt shares his reaction to learning about receiving the Maurice Ewing Medal. He offers his major takeaways from various career stops along his path and how his volunteer roles at the SEG advanced his career. Kurt provides wisdom on what's changed and hasn't changed in building a successful geophysical career and what he's most proud of when looking back at his accomplishments. It's a privilege to hear from geophysicists at the top of their profession, and Kurt provides actionable advice with his witty and personable style. Seismic Soundoff would like to provide this special announcement for graduate students active in research or early career professionals. The Early Career Subcommittee of the SEG Research Committee is receiving nominations of new members to serve the term 2023 through 2025. This subcommittee is open to graduate students active in research or early career professionals up to three years post-graduation. As part of the SEG Research Committee, the Early Career Subcommittee provides their opinion, advice, and vision to the research direction and goals of SEG from the perspective of career starters. If you are passionate about contributing to shaping the future of applied geophysics, please indicate your interest by sending a resume and cover letter by September 30th. The details are listed on the show notes for this episode. And now my conversation with Kurt Marfurt. I have the honor to speak with you because you were a recent uh, SEG highest honor of the Maurice Ewing Medal that will be taking place in, in a few weeks now. We're, we're speaking on August 9th here. What was your reaction when you learned that you would receive SEG's highest honor, the Maurice Ewing Medal? Well,
0: you know, I received two emails back to back that day one from the SEG, another from a history website that I often visit. And the SEG note said I was the recipient of the Ewing Medal. And this was really a shock and surprise to me. Then, when I opened the next history email, and it had an article on Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman emperor and philosopher. And the uh, first line quote they had was, All fame is fleeting. So I thought, Whoa, is that profound? So I was once really shocked. I'm still honored, but then reminded by an expert of this uh, of having uh, influence and so forth in the world that fame is fleeting. So that put things in perspective, and my spouse asked me, like, don't they give that kind of a word to people posthumously? She didn't use the word posthumously, but you can imagine <laughs> what she meant. I quickly checked, and no, most of the people are still alive, were still alive when they got it.
1: It's only happened once as far as I, I know. But uh yes, it is definitely not a, a posthumous award. And uh yeah, if you want if you want a if you want a little ego check reading any Stoke philosophy quotes, we'll we'll probably do that pretty quickly for you for you. Yeah, let's kind of rewind the clock a little bit. Why did you go into applied geophysics as a career?
0: So uh like most kids, and this is shown on the new SEG website or the website of the last six to nine months, where they show the little kid with a Tonka truck or whatever. So as a little kid, I loved rocks and collecting fossils. And then with my family, we would go upstate New York and go through abandoned mines and so forth. So I, I liked rocks as a little kid. And I was a physics major in college, but I was in college next to the Adirondack Mountains, upstate New York. A lot of glacial features everywhere. And, uh, I, I just fell in love with that work. And my favorite courses, I was a physics major, also a French major, but that's a different question, a physics major. And my favorite classes were optics and mechanics. But then as you go on in an undergraduate program in physics, you tend to get smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, you go from atomic physics to quantum mechanics. And I kind of liked physics that you could hold in your hand. Okay. So uh, when I graduated, I was offered a fellowship at uh, Columbia University in their uh, mining school. So I jumped at that chance. And the program there in applied geophysics uh, was quite small, only two faculty. So you needed to take courses in civil engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, physics, uh, geology. Interesting because a part of geology department was Lamont Doherty. Uh, there I got to meet uh, Maurice Ewing, okay, of which the medal is in honor of, uh, when he would give uh, lectures and seminars at, at Lamont. So that was that was kind of cool. I learned finite, a technique called finite element modeling in, uh, in mining. So think of it as a, a mesh of the earth and then you deform that mesh. So it's commonly used in structural engineering and mining and other areas. And in mining, the rocks are anisotropic, viscous, even plastic. So all the kind of stuff that in the next 20 or 30 years became important in exploration geophysics. So I had access to a supercomputer at uh, the NASA Goddard Space Center, which happened to be in Manhattan. And I had a, wrote a dissertation using seismic modeling and finding elements. So that's how I got into applied geophysics.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, as, as your career went on from there, I was... It was kind of just a classic. You did a little bit of everything. So you know, you initially started out as a research geophysicist at the Amoco Research Center in, in Tulsa, where SUG was based for many, many years. What was your major takeaway from your time there as a research geophysicist?
0: So first, I, I want to say Amoco was a a great place to work. It was really a great place to work, and uh, one thing, not. Specific to Amoco, but maybe of the time, you didn't get to choose what problem you worked on. But uh, as a research science, you did get to choose. A better word is you were trusted uh, on the way you solved that problem. Okay, so I worked there 18 years during the 1980s and 90s, and I don't think I'm exaggerating if I say we reorganized every two years. Every two years. I was put in a different group. So I was rotated into every group except uh, seismic acquisition and rock physics. So I suspect that management learned about my sloppy lab work in the university, and that's why they, I didn't get put in either of those lab-oriented areas. Now, at Amoco, I'd say my, my favorite group of the nine or ten I was in was a supercomputer implementation group. And uh, so, late 1980s, the Cray computer, uh, supercomputer hit the ground. There were several others as well, Fujitsu and CDC and several others. But anyhow, supercomputers just came of age, and I got to lead a group of basically programmers to adapt the Amico internally developed technology, as well as a university consortium software to the new supercomputer environment. Now, when you have to adapt things to a new computer operating system and you want to vectorize it, et cetera, means you get to look inside everybody's code. And the code range from seismic modeling, migration and processing, 3D basin modeling, diagenetic modeling, sediment deposition modeling, basic scale fluid flow, oil maturation, you name it. And my feeling, if you have a hard time with mathematical theory, Look at somebody's code, because inside the code, it all boils down to linear algebra and simple statistics. You can't write down equations in a code. You have to approximate them. So the major takeaway that I learned from Amoco during this period or during those 18 years is to be fungible. And fungible was one of the the power words one of our, our managers had. And it means you need to be able to adapt. So as a researcher, you need to be able to switch from your specialty to something that needs to be solved. So you got to solve the problem that needs to be solved, not the one that you're good at. And if you are good at something, hopefully you'll solve it. And if you can't do something else, they don't need you anymore. So you're one of the persons who are outsourced. So you need to adapt. Now, I did have a second takeaway because I was there 18 years, and that was how to talk to technology to customers. And during the mid-1990s, all of our funding went from corporate uh, long-range research, in our case from Chicago, to funding from business units. That means the people actually drilling and producing oil. And the business unit people wanted you to help solve problems that were in their face, not problems that they would address in 10 years. So if you're going to be successful and and basically to survive, that means get funding, you needed to learn how to partner with the folks who actually wanted to use your technology. So not only did you need to get it written, you needed to get it used, and then you needed to fix it, augment it. Modify it, improve it, depending on the feedback. And so that skill in my career in a university where several universities have consortia, that's how you work with the consortium sponsors. You put something out, and then they come back and say, Well, this didn't work, or this gave me something different. Or just as often, you know, if I'm a race car mechanic and they're the race car driver, they try to do things with it I never anticipate it. And then that drives my learning along as well. Yeah, I've got a third takeaway, too. So, we had a tech group in our Houston office. I was in Tulsa. And uh, the tech group would run the internally developed migration software, which ran on a Cray supercomputer. And uh, we had algorithm developers, uh, Sam Gray, uh, Dan Whitmore, several others, they were always busy working on the next breakthrough. Okay. They were doing technology development. And so what the Houston office did is they hired a fellow called Walt Lynn to teach the theory of migration to the Amoco workers. Well, that kind of backfired because all of the Amoco workers, interpreters and so forth, they felt that, ah, Walt Lynn and his company They were the experts at migration, so they started sending all the business outside the company, and the tech group was at risk of being underfunded and and superfluous. So they called me up and said, hey, we need somebody to teach a class on the theory of migration. We're going to do the hands-on part. We need a research person to do the theory of migration. And none of your buddies are really interested in doing that. They're too busy. So uh, so what I learned there is, one, even though this wasn't my area of expertise, yeah, I could learn enough to be able to teach it and then to get the theory to a level where a normal practitioner could understand it. And so this was my first delve into basically continuing education which once I left the oil industry, then I, I spent a lot of time at.
1: Yes, this is a nice lead into this question, you know, on, on top of continuing education. Also, there is just you kind of saying yes to an opportunity that presents itself, because I'm sure you were also very busy, too. It's not like you had all this free time that maybe all these other people didn't have. So what did volunteering with the SEG, I mean, you've been, you know, a short course instructor, editor in chief, you've been associate editors, you've served on the board. What did, what did that kind of service do that offered to your geophysical career that surprised you when you look back at it?
0: Well, in terms of uh, service to the SCG, I started in 1984 as a associate editor for geophysics. And I was in that role or a couple of years as assistant editor as well until 2015. And just like my research at Amoco the specialty they would stick me in would change. So I started out in signal analysis, and then there would be a, a stint with modeling, and then vertical seismic profiles, and we would go on and on. And uh, one of the advantages of being an associate editor, and, and definitely for being a reviewer as well, is you you get to read critically how other people put together an idea. So you you learn a lot. And then you learn how to present the idea. And I use that as, you know, when I was at the university teaching, I would often have my PhD students review a paper and criticize it for me. And then I would do the final review. And they would be able to see shortcomings in presentation in somebody else's work that they would never see in their own. So, it's always easier to see something wrong in somebody else's work. So, uh, in terms of uh, the editorial part, I got a lot of exposure to everything. I have weak points. I'm really bad at organic geochemistry. I know very little about that. And well log analysis, not very good at that either. But at least I know what people are doing and and what's exciting and how they're using it. And the part that was most satisfying is to help folks who are struggling to get a paper published. And uh, interestingly, oh yeah, sure, a common one is certain cultures around the world I'll pick on the French because I was a French major. They like to say that, uh, Laplace and Descartes, they did all the Fourier. They did all the real work. And I'm doing this, this small thing. Okay. Well, that's not how you market your idea. You need to be aggressive out there. So I would help, help them to. Be more forceful in their abstracts and conclusions. And I learned from several of the uh, publication editors, uh, the, the staff members uh, at the SCG. Two of them were former editors, uh, sports editors for the Tulsa newspaper. And if you read a sports column, it's all active voice. You know, very very powerful writing. And that's that's what the kind of way that You want to write a technological paper. In other cases, another couple of folks have helped. One of them was actually a chief geophysicist of a major processing company. And their paper was written more like a report, like a project report that you would give to a customer, not a scientific paper. So in that case, I found one of my buddies, another professor at OU to help, okay, help this guy with all the background work that he didn't talk about and how to write a scientific paper versus a technical report. And it turned out to be a fantastic paper. It was, you know, second best of the year. So that, that was very satisfying being an editor. Then uh, continuing ed, the best way to learn something is to try to teach it certainly it's fun to go around the world and see all the different cultures as well i can't complain about that it was just a wonderful experience uh but different insight when you go to different places totally different geology different perspectives on on what's important uh and then uh, and different ways of of learning and then in terms of serving with the uh, board of directors which was told to me to be oh no more than four four days a year of meetings and then what happened is well we had covid and all the conventions and so forth were being shut down and we're running into fear of bankruptcy and then how are we going to have a a distance meeting and then we had all kinds of things with uh Oh, the proposed merger between AAPG, SEG, SPE. So we definitely did not have four days of meetings during those years. They went on many, many, many days of meetings. Fortunately, by Zoom in most cases, but uh, a great group of people to work with. And uh, I see good results from the time that I participated in it.
1: There's definitely things in there you share that this question would apply to, but, you know, I'll get more directly asked it here. What has and what hasn't changed in your mind for achieving a successful geophysical career?
0: Well, I'd say the thing that hasn't changed, I'm going to make it very short. We need to remain quantitative. We need to be able to calibrate the predictions through data and scientific principles particularly with geology it's all about processes or heavy on processes and we need to calibrate those predictions using quantitative methods whether the predictions made by a colleague another interpreter or whether by a machine ro- you know machine learning robot okay they're going to make predictions and sure it looks fancy that doesn't mean it's right just like oh, this fellow who made the prediction, they're a rising star. They're the right-hand person of the boss. Maybe that person's not correct. Maybe they're telling a story. So quantitative, that hasn't changed.
1: What do you feel, if anything, has changed? Or or maybe it's just different than than it was when you were coming up.
0: Well, the, the day of the research scientist in a white lab coat doing cool things is totally gone none of those jobs exist anymore so the thing that's changed most is you have to have a customer on the other end if you develop new technology you need to reach out and find out how to best deploy the technology in a way they can use it oh some of the companies have a have a buzzword for it called fit for purpose So definitely fit for purpose is the right thing to do. And then the other thing that's changed is the way people learn, and I don't have the solution for this, and so I'll throw it out for other people who might listen to this podcast. There's a generational change where the new learner wants the information they need just in time. And that leads them to look for all their answers on Google or some other search engine. And they are reticent, and, and this is a little generational, they're not going to take a short course in a technology that they don't think they're going to need right away. That time they're spending in the short course with the way business is today, that's not taken away from their business time. That's taking away from their weekends, their time with family and friends, so getting the new geoscientist interested in learning about technologies that they might need five years from now, but not this week that's that's tough. that's definitely changed and i don't I don't have the solution for that. That's a solution for management and human resource people to
1: address. yeah, yeah. Being a, a well-rounded geophysicist, I think, is, is so key in a lot of respects. You know, when you look back and, and reflect on, on your career and your contributions, what are you most proud of regarding those accomplishments and contributions to geophysics?
0: Well, I, I guess I'm most proud of helping my students, uh, helping them start their careers, find a focus, an area that they're good at, that they can... They can bloom, they can flower, they can be successful. You know, my my professor was a Chinese, a fellow called John Sungfen Kuo. And there's an old Chinese saying that uh, a great professor shines in reflected light. So uh, that's what I'd like to think I've done. And And the one thing that I have done that's a little different Painful for my former students. I've had a lot of students in the past, but I've captured most of their work in terms of software or in terms of short course notes as well. And so to capture it in terms of software, that means they need to program. And then if they need to program, that's that's good. Well, it needs to be a program that the professor can read. So it has to be in Fortran 90, not in the language of the day. And then it has to be usable by the other students. And then in a consortium world, it has to be usable by sponsors. Then it has to have documentation and case studies. So a lot of the work that I'm given credit for, I think, is due to my students. And the part that I've contributed is is capturing and forcing them to quantify it. And then I redistribute it and maintain it, and so forth, so people might associate my name with a lot of it, but it's almost all from my students
1: yeah, I can only imagine i mean you're just you sound like you you've just really sharpened a lot of edges over the years, uh sharpened the saw as they might say, just with with these people submitting papers to geophysics and interpretation that you've improved your students that that you've improved it's it's quite a legacy. And, and kind of on the flip side of that, a little bit, what, if anything, do you think you would have done differently in your 20s, or do you wish you would have done differently in your 20s?
0: Yeah. So going back, you know, talking to younger people, or if younger people listen to this, and it's a podcast, so younger people listen to podcasts, I hope. And uh, one of the not shortcomings, I'll call it a shortcoming of today's students is that they're very focused, they want to take only the courses that'll help them with their thesis or dissertation, and then they wanna get to writing and and finish. And when you're younger, in your 20s, that is the time you can really branch out and take courses and things that you may never use, no, you think you will never use, but guess what? You'll end up using them. So take courses in, engin- in civil engineering, take courses in soil mechanics, take courses in uh, oh electricity, transmission, things like that, that, hey, in our future as a geophysicist, uh, that may be where your career takes you, not seismic processing, for instance, or seismic interpretation even.
1: And and lastly, Kurt, it goes in with a lot of this conversation, but to wrap it all up, is there a principle, teaching, or point of view that you feel has helped you succeed in your field?
0: I'd say you need to be willing to change, willing to listen, willing to accept failure, because there'll be plenty of failures, and then willing to adapt, because you can't control things. So our future geophysicists, guess what? They're going to have lots of change. They'll probably have a lot of failure, and they're certainly going to have to adapt to a rapidly changing future.
1: Well, people will have the the opportunity to hear you share a few more words at Image in, in a few weeks. And congratulations on this honor, well deserved. You are still the uh, the number two most listened to podcast in the in the history of the SEG podcast. So, I'm excited to to have you back on for a third time and and to share your wisdom with with our listeners.
0: Hopefully I didn't just counteract everything I did in the previous (laughs) podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Andrew.
1: You reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org/podcast and find the box titled "Contact Seismic Sound Off." Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Garriott Treasurement. The SEG Podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Allie McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off signaling off